welcome to the Maris Review. We have a very special episode today because I am not sitting across the room from anyone. Instead, I have a very special guest on the phone. It's Susan Orlean. She's the author of the library book, which is now out in paperback. Um, she's probably author, the author of some of your very favorite books. She is mine. And I'm thrilled to be talking to her in New York City while she's in L.A. Welcome, Susan. Thanks, Maris. I'm happy to be with you. Yay. So I, I spoke to you before the library book was published. So I was right, wondering right. if you could tell me how, it's, how the reception has been. Like you, you've toured libraries. You must have heard from a few librarians, I'm assuming. What's it been like? Yeah. Well, it's, it's actually been amazing. Um, yeah. At, at the moment that you and I spoke initially, it was the very brink of the book coming out. And I had all the natural anxieties sure. of thinking, no one cares about libraries. No one wants to read about a library fire that took place in 1986 <laughs> in LA. You know, I, I was, I think it's natural that you get very, Doubtful right at the moment that your book's about to come out. And it has been, the reception has been quadruple what I could have dreamed of. Oh, that's great. Um, it's just been fantastic. And I've toured the country for the last year and a half since then, almost year and a half, going to libraries everywhere and then also some internationally and it's really been just wonderful i mean one thing that i realize is libraries are a universal fact of life sure. and also they're kind of universally loved yes so i i had the great delight of tapping into that and then um just feeling like it it touched something in a lot of people so i'm Looking for some wood to knock. I don't see any wood here. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. So in a I'm going to knock studio. my head, which is as close to wood Indeed. as I can find. So there you go. Perfect. Yeah. And I even remember um, your publisher when, when before the book came out was doing a campaign um, about nostalgia for one's own library and trying to get readers to share their memories. Um, have you heard a lot in that respect? You know, that's been the thing that's been the most interesting and very moving because those parts of the book where I talked about my own nostalgic, you know, very deeply emotional yes. uh, memories of going to the library with my mom growing up, I I hadn't really thought about that triggering what it did, which was for so many people that their deep association with libraries is remembering going with a parent yes. when they were children. I've heard from such a range of people who I think it's a, an opportunity for them to just sort of go back and savor some of those memories, yeah. which aren't necessarily things you think about day to day, but it it's a it's certainly revealed to me that that's a very common um mutually 
appreciated memory of being a kid in a library and the the sort of wonder and marvel that yeah. it fills children with in particular. It's so funny because I, I'm not one of those people who's like, I love the smell of books, but certainly reading your book led me to remember that I did, in fact, love the smell of the library. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> I can't describe it. It's a very it. particular thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because I think that there are all of these sensory connections to the library. I mean, when I walked in with my son mm -hmm. and sort of triggered these memories of my childhood trips with my mom, I hadn't even lifted a book off the shelf. It was mm -hmm. the smell and the sound right. and the sort of ambience of the library that really hit me in that sensory memory mm -hmm. more than specifically pulling a book off the shelf. Right. It really was the place and all of those. I, I'm, you know, it's funny. Someone just gave me a candle that is a fence <laughs> yes. called library. And, you know, we were sniffing it and I said, well, it doesn't really smell like a library. <laughs> but it's funny to think that we even think about libraries having a smell. And yes. they do. I mean, it's the smell of all that paper and books and humanity all coursing through the building kind of constantly. When we first talked about your book, I think this was part of I'm, – I'm projecting on you now. I, I thought this was part of um, pre-book jitters because I asked you if there was more pressure for you to be right because you're writing a book about books and book lovers and um, – the people who care about facts. And I'm I'm wondering how that turned out. Like if did did you get the facts straight? Um did people have opinions that they needed to express to you? Yeah, it's funny. Um I I mean overall on the facts that are materially important, it seems like I got them right. Yeah. It's also true that, and I had hired a fact checker mm -hmm. to go over the book and make sure it was right. Because right. for that very reason, I mean, I want to be right no matter what. Right. But I thought the readers of this book are going to be particularly persnickety about <laughs> In the getting best way. it right. Yes. And... I Of course, there are always errors in books. I'm mm -hmm. happy to say there's no error in it that is substantial in any in any way. I, I mean, for instance, I, I mentioned that a particular hardware store was in Glendale, and it's in fact in South Pasadena. Oh, no. So, <laughs> you know, I got it wrong. And I'll tell you, here's the hilarious thing. The fact that I was most often corrected on was I referred to the Rose Bowl Parade as the Rose Bowl Parade. And then I heard from many, many people that technically it's the Tournament of Roses oh, parade. Sure. So, I, you know, Sticklers. we corrected it in later <laughs> editions of the book, but... It's and it's the kind of error that I wish I hadn't made, but luckily it's not like somebody said, 
there is no such thing (laughs) as a parade, you know, or it's not a parade. It's a festival, you know, or or the event that you said took place never took place. I mean, there was no fact like that that ended up being a problem. But, you know, there certainly are corrections that we made throughout, you know, luckily when you have multiple printings of a book, Mm. you have the opportunity to adjust those things. So thank God the Rose Bowl (laughs) Parade is now (laughs) referred to by its proper Proper name. name. Though I have to say, as of in the vernacular, I believe most people still think of it as the Rose Bowl Parade. Am I right? Or am I as an East Coaster? I say yes, but who knows? (laughs) Yeah, well, and 90% of the people who got in touch with me about this, and I'm exaggerating the numbers, it was probably four (laughs) people. Out of the hundreds of people who called you. Yes. Yeah, right. No, it was, I think it was four people. And they all live in Pasadena. Sure. For them, it's a it's personal. You know, it's it's a very important, salient fact because mm-hmm. this takes place in their town. But and I, I'm not making fun of it. I'm making fun of myself because it it's a mistake we shouldn't have made. But luckily, it's not one that changes the the nature of the book. Thank no. goodness. No. Uh, a, a chilling thing that I realized is that when we first discussed the book, y- you talk about so much even in the book that um, fires have always shaped L.A. And that was before everything that's happening now. Yeah, uh, it's a I went back and reread that section and was. It was chilling um, to realize, you know, you don't when you live on the East Coast, as mm-hmm. I did for so many years, of course, you don't want a building to build burn down and you're conscious of fire. But it's not the way it is in California, where fire feels like this wild animal mm. that lives out there and is waiting to pounce. Yes. And, you know, since the time I was writing that section of the book and now we've had horrendous, um, devastating fires in California and and they're all part of this landscape and and the the fact that California has developed so that you've got populations in wild areas where a little spark from an electric line can trigger an enormous devastating fire and yeah it's it has been really very sobering i i almost had one of my book tour events canceled because Mm. it was in ventura and there was a fire um that was raging and they weren't sure if the library was going to be closed Uh. for mainly for health reasons when the air quality is so bad. Uh, And fortunately, we were able to do it. But it's really, um, it's only getting worse. And that's a very disturbing reality. It is. So in the book, you discuss this 1986 fire that destroyed so much of, or the holdings of the LA Library main branch. And... 
you also had some speculation about whether you could solve the crime. I'm making air quotes in my head um, as to whether it was arson, whether a specific person set the fire on purpose. Have have your opinions or um, beliefs changed about that? I went into the project thinking that I would solve this unsolved crime. Yes. Which was ridiculous and vain and, <laughs> you know, arrogant and absurd, but no. um, full of hope. Yeah, there you <laughs> I, go. And in fact, I remember when I pitched the book proposal, my publisher said, so you're going to sol- solve the crime. <laughs> and I said, oh, of course, of course I am. That's what you do. And uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> it is um, a kind of hilarious presumption that, I mean, first of all, arson is the probably one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult crime to solve, quote unquote, because the evidence is usually destroyed Mm -hmm. in the fire and it's so easy to start a fire. I mean, it's more amazing to me that any arson is ever solved, knowing now how little it takes to set a huge conflagration. I mean, it can be just a match and the match disappears. So if there's no witness, you can imagine how hard it would ever be to figure out who started a fire. Mm. And what I ended up really feeling that the book could do was explore the story of the young man who was the main and only suspect Mm -hmm. and how and why that pursuit of him legally kind of, came to a very odd ending. Right. And and I I looked into one other possibility which was the idea that maybe it had been misdiagnosed. Maybe right. this wasn't an arson. And I think there's some strong suggestion that that might be true, but of course without examining evidence and there is no evidence <laughs> right. at this point to examine. Right. Um, it, you can only speculate on it. And, you know, there were, I've been asked now many, many times, well, do you really think Harry Peak did it or not? And Harry Peak is the, right. the young man who is the suspect. I don't have a secret feeling about it. <laughs> I, I find it, um, I am just as ambivalent about that question as I was at the very beginning. I think there's strong evidence or strong circumstantial evidence to answer both ways. Right. To say yes he did and no he didn't. Um, the, the piece of it that's the most unsettled for me is the idea that why would he do that? Yes. Harry was a screw up and a and somebody who is a fumbler and a bumbler and a, liar. a show off. Yes. And, but that doesn't make you an arsonist. He had never yeah. done anything destructive except to himself, actually. Right. right. So, you know, that's a huge leap 
to go from being a bumbling guy who doesn't pay his rent <laughs> to starting a $22 million fire. Yes. And I find, I, you know, I, I just struggle with that part of it, which is the idea that he, there's nothing that makes me think that he was someone who was destructive, who was vengeful, who, who was that reckless. Right. And yet, there were things about that day and that fire that he knew that he could have only knew, known if he were there. Yes. So that's that kind of suggests that he was present, even though he claimed he wasn't. So, you know, you you're back in the same place, which is this is a guy who has trouble telling the truth. Yes. That doesn't necessarily and, mean, you know, I it, it was a risk, I think, writing a book where there's not a neat conclusion. Uh, and yet it's nonfiction. Life yeah, is messy. Absolutely. And we don't always know. We don't get the answers. And um, I'm afraid in this case, this is one where we don't have the answers. But so instead um the answers you you get are more about how the system works um how libraries run you, you you followed so many people around the LA county libraries um and and learned so much about how they're run um and also how many services they they do for the community right right i and you know i i almost began to feel that this this was the story of a that the library was in in some strange way a character a, mm -hmm. a an entity that had a mysterious heart attack <laughs> that you know the cause of which we'll never really know but the book was the portrait of this this being this library that has so many parts of it, so many functions, so many quirky, interesting people involved, and so much rich, truly fascinating history. Yes. Was there anything that you didn't catch for the book that you noticed as you were doing your tour of, of libraries here and internationally? Uh, well, I, I think that... Um, I, I tried really hard to portray the day-to-day -day life yes. of the library. And and in that sense, I, I felt pretty content that I had kind of tagged each part of it that was available to me. Um, so I didn't walk away thinking about big chunks that I failed to notice. Right. I guess the main thing is that in a really good way, libraries are evolving always. They're always changing. And it, it, any minute there could be some new way the library interfaces with the public right. that will be new that I won't have captured. And 
so in the book, you you go into a little more detail about the services that the LA libraries offer to the homeless population there, which is right a huge part of their clientele. Yeah, and, and yeah, and, for and, sure, and not only theirs, but I would say every library in this country. Mm-hmm. Did you see anything else throughout the country that that gives you hope? Is there are there any ways that libraries are innovating in terms of helping their communities? There are a lot of libraries now that have on their staff a social worker, mm. and which is an uh, a kind of um, signal that they've acknowledge right. the fact that librarians are librarians. Right. And they are many of them are um have taken on a lot of social work tasks and challenges, but they are fundamentally not social workers. And right. uh I believe it was Kansas City that now has a full time social worker on staff. And I think that is a really good thing and an important thing that I hope other libraries begin considering because, you know, we expect librarians to be everything to everybody and they do a pretty damn good job of that. But then there are limits in what they can do and dealing with people who have serious mental illness, serious drug and alcohol issues that. You're not learning that in library school. And this this isn't meant in any way to be critical of librarians as much as to be sympathetic to the fact that they're being asked to provide services that are not what their job is all about. So I hope I hope we see more of that. I will say, just to state the obvious, (laughs) homelessness is society's problem. It's not library's problem. Right. And our failure to adequately grapple with the issue of homelessness is, is something that all of us are responsible for and where the civic response has been in most places woeful. Yes. And libraries have really stepped up yeah. in a way that's pretty heroic, but it also strains their resources. And we have to be careful that we don't see some of the fundamental parts of libraries be neglected because right. librarians are being pulled off to manage the homeless population but it just goes back to the same thing which is city governments have to deal with this as an issue it's it is the in my opinion Mm -hmm. the most urgent urban issue that that will only get worse and worse absolutely and another thing that we've we've talked about previously was how inherently political libraries have to be in that they represent the values that we hope to instill in our democracy 
Right. I mean, they are they're a very interesting apolitical political right. entity. I mean, the very existence of a library is a political statement, which is that information should be free and available. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a pretty loaded political notion, a really great one, in my opinion. Yes. Um, but it is in its very existence a, a political point to make. And And you also talk a lot about how it's often the most welcoming place for immigrants within a community. It's one of the most heartening, wonderful things to see. And, you know, first of all, even if libraries simply don't make any special effort to welcome immigrants, the fact that they provide information to people who have come here and need it is amazing and wonderful, but most libraries have really embraced this. And I mean, during the, um, over the last year, the LA library opened a a new kind of department, which is just called new Americans. Mm. And it's to serve on all levels, like literacy issues, citizenship issues, um, material that helps people learn English and it's it's you know this idea that this is the perfect place to welcome immigrants and of every sort and to say here's all of this free information and um there are lots of workshops and non book um services right. that are are offered which is pretty great that's wonderful, especially, I mean, more than now, more than ever, I guess, is the thing that we say in these circumstances. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I've i spoken about this, um, you know, partly with a wink in the eye, but also it's really true. I yeah. started this book during the Obama administration. Yes. And some of the principles of what makes libraries special were, of course, wonderful and important in that moment of time, but their importance has grown that much more profound Yes, in over the last couple of years with what's gone on politically in this country. And the, this idea of what is factual, what's, yes, what information is real and, and who gets to participate in civic life. And, you know, this is really, libraries have been this kind of beacon of hope and, um, and, and a model of active democracy, small d, yes. in a way that I think makes you feel really proud to to support them and to kind of share space on the planet with them. (laughs) Absolutely. So I have to really thank Donald Trump (laughs) for making my book even more relevant. Yeah, there you go. And that's the first and last time I'm going to thank Donald Trump. Yes. But, um, and I think that, uh, it really, you know, it's, it's a different world than when I started the book. 
I wanted to mention so so in in the book, of course, you detail how you yourself uh, took it up on yourself to burn a book to see what it was uh, all about, <laughs> how it happened. Mm-hmm. That was one of the more um, challenging bits of reporting I've ever done because once I had decided to burn a book, which I I thought would be useful for me in the just purely to know what it looked like when I was writing about an incident in which over a million books were burning mm. um, and also to explore this thing that I was very curious about, which is the, the taboo. Yes. Um, and discomfort that I felt about burning a book, even when it's not logical because we print books in huge numbers now yes. and I could burn one and go buy it <laughs> again in five minutes. So yes. th- I'm not removing from the, you know, the archives, the, the sort of, um, well of human knowledge right. permanently anything, but I still felt this great discomfort with the idea of doing it. And that is partly why it made me want to do it. I just thought, <laughs> this is so crazy. I mean, it's almost superstitious. Yes. It, it's on that level where it's not rational. I know it's not rational, but the idea of burning a book felt haunted to me. Um, and I really was, I had gotten to the point where I thought, you know what, I just don't want to do this. It's it's just bothering <laughs> me too much. And it was right around that time when my husband proposed the perfect book for me to burn, which was Fahrenheit 451. I mean, and I, you know, it was then where I thought, all right, I have to do this. Yes, I think I have to do it. And I think Ray Bradbury would approve. Yes. Um, for all the reasons that he wrote Fahrenheit 451. Plus, as I learned really after I burned the book that Ray Bradbury had grown up in LA, couldn't afford college and Mm. instead spent by his reckoning every day for 14 years in the LA library, reading his way through every department and educating himself. So he was somebody who had a very, very, powerful connection to the LA library. And when the library burned, he got involved in helping raise money to uh, restore it and save the books that had been damaged. That's so wonderful because I, I, I don't know if you're familiar, but I heard of an instance recently when college students um, protested an author visit by by burning her books and um i of course i i thought of you and 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 how hard it was for you to just burn this this one <laughs> that was that was yeah. symbolic and and again it made me think like ooh are these worse times now <laughs> yeah well i remember hearing about that in- incident as well and you know, it's interesting how we're all so used to violence and 
destruction and that we see in movies and on the news. And yet the idea of a group of students gathering together and burning books yeah. is still pretty horrifying. It really is. Uh, that we, we, we haven't lost that, that kind of revulsion um, at the thought of burning books. It feels, um, feels like a real statement of um, wanting to erase someone and erase their mm. words and silence them. It, it just feels really oppressive. It does. Pretty terrible. And I think when young people do something like that, it feels even more disturbing. Although I will say the big book burnings in Nazi Germany, which were um, one of the the kind of immediate recollections I had right. about reading about these book burnings, um, were conducted by college students. Hmm. Um, you know, I think we have this idea that college students are open to learning and, and knowledge yeah. and to seeing the world with open eyes. And, you know, I'd like to think that that's largely true. But, you know, one of the great historical horrors of the Nazi book burnings were carried out by the German Student Union. Ugh. Hmm. Kind of sobering, isn't it? It sure I mean, is. But also, I mean, I always thought it was Nazi soldiers, and it was not. Um, it was certainly orchestrated by um, J Joseph Goebbels, who, you know, was the architect of these things. But it right. was students who did it. Yeah, you'd like to think that the intellectuals are a different group entirely. Um, yeah, I know. And that young people, by definition, are are just more open to the world, but maybe not. But at least um, most, yeah. most libraries in, in our country uh, and, and throughout the world are are, are trying, <laughs> are giving people the opportunities yes. to grow. Yeah, and not I, I. I don't mean to be so bleak. And, I, I brought it down. Grim. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 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 let's turn to a, a a more hopeful topic, which is um, what books have you been reading lately? What can you recommend? So you can oh, be our librarian. I've had such a a <laughs> great time reading recently. I've just read a bunch of great books. I just finished. The Old Drift. Oh, I loved it. By Namwali Serpel. Oh, amazing. Yes. Amazing, amazing book. Um, just extraordinary. Uh, a really epic, gorgeous book. And I, I loved it. Um, then I turned to a very different book, um, The Sisters Brothers. Oh, by another Patrick favorite. DeWitt, which I loved it. It, it's and so it's funny. Sort of, it's Dark. so funny and sweet and sad, and I, I loved it. And I kind of have a bit of a weakness for westerns. Mm. I really love a great western, and that that book just thrilled me. Um, I'm in the middle of reading *The Swerve* by oh. Stephen Greenblatt, which is fascinating. Um, 
and that's nonfiction right. uh, about the discovery of this poem uh, written in ancient Greece that basically had a very modern perspective that that Greenblatt is sort of positing that this poem was the trigger for the Renaissance and the mm. and what eventually brought the world out of dark ages into the modern era and it's really fun to read and fascinating and i'm just loving it oh that's why i i have to get on that um good so that's a good reminder <laughs> thank you yeah i mean it's it's really terrific and um i've been reading like a house on fire i've <laughs> I'm, i just finished normal people by sally rooney of course yes I, I just also finished something else, but now I'm blanking out. Um, I read a lot of books on Kindle because I've been traveling so oh. much. So I don't have the same ability Sensory. to remember the cover. Right. And then, you know what I mean? I, I do. I'm not remembering the way the book looks and then being able to remember what it was that I read. Yeah, that happens Terrible. to me all the time. Especially because I read so many books in manuscript form. Oh, so you the, never have a cover. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But we make I mean, do. I, you know, but it's a good the problem way I have. am with, mu with music. I mean, I grew up where you would buy an album and I could have this visual kind of recall of an album and I knew all the songs on it because I would read the back of the album now I listen to everything on Spotify. Right. And if you ask me what it is, I have no memory. I don't know the <laughs> name of any song, Same. you know. But and with reading on a Kindle, for sure, you don't have that same uh, kind of visceral ability to remember the book by picturing the cover. Yes, but you can carry your entire library with you, which is uh, very free for sometimes. a traveler. It's <laughs> fantastic. Yes. Um, I also just because I swing wide with my my reading tastes, I just um, bought and will read for the first time. Yes. I'm saying this with some shame, but um, Dangling Man by Saul Bellow, which oh. I've never read. I so read I feel either. like it's a, you know, bit of a classic mm -hmm. and somehow or other. I never read it. So trying to fill in the holes in my That's um, wonderful. in my my reading. Thank you so much for being my first East Coast to West Coast <laughs> call. Yeah, it's almost like we just drove the spike into the Intercontinental Railroad. There you this go. Is, this is very dramatic and thank you so <laughs> much for having me on the show and giving me a chance to talk about a subject near and dear to my heart. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>